put the music tonight. Psalm 119, Psalm 119, and we will be looking at the next stanza, as Derek read just a few moments ago, from verses 137 to 144, in what has been nicknamed the Mount Everest of the Bible. And this, of course, is the longest chapter in all of Scripture, and nearly every single verse speaks regarding the Word of God, specific reference to the Word of God. The Hebrew letter, T-Z-A-D-D-I. I do not know how to pronounce that in the Hebrew, <laughs> but that would be the letter that would begin each verse of this stanza in the original language. We see, first of all, in this stanza that God is righteous. We see the psalmist declare the righteousness of God. Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. God is righteous. He is holy. He is always right. Now, don't we wish that we were always right? Maybe it would just get to our heads and we'd become very prideful. Some people, they already think that they're always right. And they, they have a problem with their pride. But God is always right. He is always right and righteous in all of his deeds. He is holy in his character. He is righteous in his character. And all of his actions, all of his deeds are done in holiness. They are done in righteousness. We see in verse 137, Righteous art thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Verse 138, Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me, verse 139, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. We drop down to verse 142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. So we see that God is holy, he does righteousness, he is righteous, he is holy in all his ways, and he is everlasting in his righteousness. He is everlasting in his holiness. He never ceases, will never cease to be holy. He is eternal, and he is eternal in his holiness and his righteousness. That is hard for us to fathom. At some point, we will mess up, we will fail. The, the godliest, the best individual we can possibly think of is going to fail at some point. We look at all of Scripture, and one of the testimonies to the fact that Scripture is the very inspired Word of God is the fact that it declares man in his sinful condition. It declares his reality, the reality of his sinful condition. So there's very few men and women mentioned in the Bible that their faults and their failures aren't also referenced. It's not uncommon in historical records for only the good things that the famous person, the king, the general, the emperor, it's not uncommon in their historical records to only record what is good, what is victorious, what they have done well, what they have conquered, something good about them. 
But the Bible declares man in his sinful condition. So uh, David, who is a man after God's own heart, the Bible records polygamy, immorality, adultery, pride. Even Solomon, who God uh, gave uh, his word by inspiration as Solomon wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. He's writing great words of wisdom, maybe the wisest man ever to live on this earth, other than, of course, Jesus Christ himself, a very wealthy man. Yet his wives turned his heart away from the Lord, and he became an idolatrous king toward the end of his reign. We can go on and on with the examples. Man, no matter how good he or she is, mankind, no matter how Strong, no matter how faithful, no matter how vibrant we are in our spiritual life, we have to take heed lest we fall. It is a warning from the scriptures for all of us. It is often at the mountaintop that Satan is right there looking to pull us down. Have you ever played King of the Hill? And you've been the one on the top of the hill, the top of the place, if you've ever played that game and you get yanked down and someone else climbs up and then that person gets yanked down and the king of the hill is trying to stay up at the top. The example that we think of is Elijah who at Mount Carmel had a great victory and all Jezebel had to say is I want you dead, I want your head and he went into a state of discouragement and ran. Satan is always lurking, isn't he? He is a roaring lion. He's vigilant. He's walking about seeking seeking whom he may devour. So we must be vigilant. We must be careful. But God, there's never any failure. His righteousness and his holiness never runs out. When we have been in heaven for 10 million years, yet he will still remain righteous and holy. It will never exhaust itself. He will remain eternally holy and eternally righteous. And we will be kept by his grace in heaven as believers for all eternity with our holy and righteous God who is so gracious and merciful upon our repentance and turning to him in saving faith. We are clothed in his righteousness. It's his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. We are justified, declared not guilty and God sees us now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that will be sustained by our holy and righteous God for all eternity, for those who know him. It's an incredible thought, isn't it? Isaiah wrote, as he was called of God in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Ezra was struck with this as he was making Big decisions regarding separating from worldly Canaanite practices. As he's leading Israel and returning to the land in Ezra 9. And Ezra declares that God is righteous. Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9 as he is helping rebuild the walls. And as he is praying and he's calling out as he is dealing with Samballot and Tobias and all the, the uh, resistance and the weariness of the work, and 
he cries out in prayer and he calls upon the Lord and he declares that God is righteous. Jeremiah does the same in chapter 12 and verse 1. He declares that God is righteous. Daniel, in his prayer in Daniel 9, we had a wonderful study looking through Daniel 6 yesterday in our men's Bible study. What a, a joy it was to walk through that great chapter and to see Daniel's integrity, his character, his leadership. And then in chapter 9, he's praying and he, in that prayer, references the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God helps us, sustains us, strengthens us, humbles us, reminds us of who we are and upon whom we must depend and we must trust him. Because we're not righteous in and of ourselves, are we? Our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Even our righteousness is as filthy rags when we try to earn our way to heaven, as so many people try to do, sadly. And even those good things that Paul said that he did in Philippians 3, Paul talked about his spiritual religious pedigree, and he said, I count those things but dung that I might know Christ. And we are humbled by the fact that God is righteous, and it should call us to holiness and to righteousness in our, in our living. Be ye holy, for I am holy, we read in the New Testament. We also see that God's word is righteous. It should say Roman numeral 2. I thought I'd change that, but it must not have uploaded to, to the cloud in time. Anyway, some of you understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the clouds out here either. <laughs> but I thought I'd change that this afternoon to Roman numeral 2. But we see, as we read earlier and as Derek read, verse 138, Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. You know, there are... I was watching a little bit of the Colts this afternoon. And it, the NFL has to constantly change rules. I mean, what was a catch maybe three years ago is not a catch today, or vice versa. We all know, if you have followed football at all, the infamous Tom Brady tuck rule, right? I remember watching that game, and the next year when they changed the rule, we all knew it was the Tom Brady rule. There's rules of the game. I'm a big baseball fan. I'm more of a traditionalist. Some of the changes I am happy with, some of them I'm not so happy with. And I, I'm just one of those guys who, if a guy strikes out 200 times in a season, but he can hit 40 home runs, I still say he needs to improve his batting average and not be striking out so much. But some people, all they want to see is the home runs. Rules in the game change. Games change. The expectations. But God's word never changes. God's law never changes. So as God is righteous, as God is holy, and his holiness and his righteousness are everlasting, God's word is righteous. God's word is right and produces righteousness. Verse 140, we look down, thy word is very pure. I believe it's in the, uh, the, the book of Psalms earlier. It talks about the word of God being pure and tried in a furnace of fire seven times, seven being the perfect number. It is perfect, holy, righteous in every way. God's word is truth. It is very pure. Verse 142, 
Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and thy law is the truth. God's law is the truth. We don't define our own truth. That's what is so common. That's what we hear all the time. You live your truth, I'll live my truth. We develop and set the standard for ourselves. We kind of make it up as we go along. And don't you get tired of this phrase, you need to be on the right side of history. I get so tired of that. What does that mean anyway, the right side of history? Well, maybe those who claim to be on the right side of history have it all wrong because all of that so-called progress is not progress. Much of it is digression into destruction and hellfire, sadly. So this whole business about every person expressing themselves and deciding truth for themselves, it is such a lie from Satan. God's word is truth. Verse 144, and it is everlasting truth. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. We can hold to the promises, the principles, the commands, the truths of God's word. We can hold to them. They are our rock. They are, our, they are everlasting. They are, they are objective truths that we know are holy, very pure. They are right. And they will never fail. It reminds us of the great psalm, Psalm 19, where we read, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Statutes are the precepts of God. They're His divine charges and orders. They are morally right and straight. His orders, His commands, His word is always right. They are always fair. They are holy. His way is perfect, Psalm 18 and verse 30 says. His commands are for His glory and for our good. And what do they do? They rejoice the hearts. When we obey God's righteous orders, it brings rejoicing. It brings joy and satisfaction and delight to our hearts. Obedience to the Word of God results in joy and the peace and the blessing of God in our lives. We continue there in Psalm 19. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I guess I put that there twice. But we see the rejoicing of the heart. We see the commandment of the Lord is pure. We see the fear of the Lord. Another phrase, speaking of the word of God, is clean. All, again, speaking to the fact that the word of God is pure, is righteous. And notice that it changes lives. It produces righteousness. Rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, and we know that the simple are made wise, as we've looked at in a previous sermon. We see that a Christian sees with a biblical view because of the Word of God, sees life from an eternal perspective, from a heavenly perspective, from a biblical perspective. As believers, we have a whole new outlook on life, a whole new view of the world. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus, and it changes our perspective on life as believers. That's a testimony to the Word of God that changes us, that produces within us righteousness and Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't come by our own efforts, by us having some sort of self-help book and following 40 days and 40 rules 
in Seven Steps to Success, the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit. As we depend upon the Lord, as we apply His Word, as we live out the truth of the Word of God, as we allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly, as we allow the Holy Spirit to control us. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And then we see that change in our life, that producing of righteousness, of the fruit of the Spirit, of the virtues of 2 Peter chapter number 1. So we see the Word of God is true now and forever and produces within us righteousness. We see also in this stanza, as we continue, we also see the psalmist reminds us of this need that we have of zeal for the Word of God. That word zeal, I love this word zeal. Someone who is zealous, who is passionate. I enjoy, again, sports, but there is something about a ball player who has a passion for the game. Sometimes I think these newer athletes, these athletes today, some of them, I I wonder if they really love the game, if they really have a passion for the game. Uh, I don't know where you're at on, on Pete Rose and all of that scandal with the cheating, but he played with passion. He played with hustle. Charlie Hustle, I think, was his nickname. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big Deion Sanders fan. He's all over the news. I get tired of hearing about Colorado. But that man played with passion. He played with enthusiasm. You can probably think of other athletes. There's something about it. I would imagine Allison in music and band and working with students. You probably love a passionate musician who loves uh, the, the, the practice and the, the performances. And, and, and there's something about that. And I just wonder, where is our zeal for the Lord sometimes? Where, where is our passion for the Lord? We, we would sing on regular basis in our Preacher Boys class on Fridays, we would sing a passion for thee, O Lord. We see the psalmist, my zeal hath consumed me. This word zeal is sometimes translated jealousy or envy. It is a strong desire of possession and ownership. A strong desire. Such a desire for the truth of the word of God, for the holiness of God, for the righteousness of God. He says, because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. What stirs up his passions? What stirs up his zeal? He sees God's enemies forsaking God's law, living out in evil and wickedness, and it should stir up a passion within us for the holiness of our God, the righteousness of God's standards. It should produce within us a desire to not go that direction, to live for God, to raise our children upright. It should stir within us a passion for church and for, uh, for the, the truth of the word of God. As we see the wickedness around us and our enemies, God's enemies, ultimately, I should say, Forsaking God's law, it should give us a greater zeal and a passion for the truth of the word of God, for the body of Christ, for seeing God's truth lived out in our own lives and in our homes, our families and our church. It should give us a greater zeal for evangelism. It should produce within us a great desire We see this word consumed, cut me off, literally. 
So we see, my zeal hath consumed me. It, has, it is such a passion, it is such a desire that it is wearing me out. Now this isn't a call to burn and wear out for thee, dear Lord, where you work 80 hours a week, you never have time for your family, and you're basically married to the church. That's not, <laughs> that's not what this is saying. I remember one of our, it stood out to me, and I remembered it for all these years, but so we had in our little Christian school growing up, we had a family that was just extremely busy in the ministry. And uh, we, we felt a lot of that in uh, the, the, the ministry, our previous ministry. And, and Kelly was teaching full time and I was the school principal. And, uh, and I remembered back in my high school days, I remember one of our teachers and just about lost his, his son. He ran away from home. There was fear of, of suicide. And I remember my mom and dad, they, they said, He's, he's too busy. He's doing good work. He and his wife are involved in every ministry possibly they could. They loved the Lord. They had a zeal for Christian education, for the church. But there was something that was not right at home in the busyness of family life, and, or busyness of ministry life, and not having time for family. And uh, my, my mom and dad kind of helped us through that, and thankfully that boy returned home, and, and, and things were were taken care of, but that stuck with me through the years. And I realized as the ministry got bigger and bigger, as our responsibilities at the Christian school and ministry, at our former ministry, I realized how busy I was getting and how much the time and the dictates and the pressures, and God had to do a work in my heart. And 2020 came around, and, and God dealt with me very, very, very pointedly one night. And uh, it, was, it was a wake-up call that even though I was trying best I could to balance everything, I realized I had now become guilty of going too far with my ministry. And it was beginning to affect my family life. And God kind of hit me right between the eyes with a two-by-four, so to speak, and realized some things needed to change. But that's not the kind of zeal that he's talking about where we forsake our responsibilities as family, as husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. But the idea that we are, it should bother us what's going on in Israel, shouldn't it? It should bother us that there are lies being told. It should bother us when there are barbaric actions of savagery and cruelty in the lies that are perpetrated to cover that up and to excuse that. It should bother us when there are children's hospitals that are mutilating kids in transgender surgeries. It should bother us when there are laws in the land that are being passed in some states to murder innocent preborn life from the very beginning stages of conception even down to birth and partial birth abortion and beyond. It should bother us that there are enemies of God who have forsaken God's law. It should stir up within us a zeal for righteousness, for holiness, for godly living, for evangelism. It should bother us that God's word is so flagrantly violated and so willingly suppressed. We continue in this stanza and we see that we must delight in God's word. Difficult times come. We need God's word to be our delight. A good friend of mine, his wife, 
has been told that she only has a few months to live. As a friend of mine from high school, a fellow pastor down in Canby, Indiana. And uh, Tim and I, I did not know when I left that lunch table, because I was sick and tired of the filthy conversation of my classmates. I had no idea when I moved over to the, the table, the lunch table for the rejects, <laughs> if I can say it that way. I had no idea when I moved over to the reject table that there would be several other people that would follow me. And Tim was one of those who came, and we were friends, and we spent the year at the lunch table, and we had great conversation, and we, de- we determined we weren't going to talk about and do the things that those other guys were doing. Tim's now a pastor, has been pastoring longer than I have, and his wife has just been diagnosed with an incurable cancer. The cancer came back, and she only has a few months to live. I've seen posts from their daughter, and she's been going to the Word of God. She's been finding her delight in the Word of God through a very difficult time. When difficult times come, we need God's Word, don't we? We need the promises of God's Word. When trouble and anguish have taken hold on on me, verse 143, yet thy commandments are my delights. We have to continue to have a love for God's Word. Thy Word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. We need to be in love with God's Word and the purity of God's Word because it produces righteousness and purity in our lives. And that is how we please the Lord by living a pure and a righteous life. He loves us, but he also loves us with a love that is desirous of our holiness, of the fruit of the Spirit and the virtues of 2 Peter 1 and the character of Christ being formed within us, Christ-likeness. And we need to have that love for God's Word, that God's Word would produce within us that righteousness that we talked about earlier in verses 137 and 138. We should not forget God's Word. The end of verse 141. And we're reminded again as we see another theme repeated often in Psalm 119. God's Word brings understanding, brings discernment, and with that discernment brings life. Discernment, we have a little dog that has no discernment. Not a rational being. Clearly not a rational being. That little dog will run out. Now, thankfully, I have him on a leash with a harness, but we go down our driveway, and that dog is on a mission. He loves to go on walks, and he has a particular area that we walk on a certain pattern across the street. That dog would run out into the middle of Union Street with all that traffic. And I'm sitting there holding him back, and he's on two hind legs wanting to get across the street. And I'm saying, Mickey, car, no, no. No discernment. He would run out there and get splattered by a semi if I didn't hold him back on a leash. No discernment. Not a rational being. But isn't it the case with our children when they're young, they're growing up, and you're holding them by the hand, and you're in a crowded place, you're next to a busy street? What would a little kid do if the ball rolled out in the street? They would run out and chase that ball and not look. And there's all kinds of discernment that we teach our children about safety, common sense, uh, safe practices around the house and out in the neighborhood and playing in the, the driveway or whatever. We know that a lack of discernment is typical for immature people. So what is the psalmist crying out for? Understanding discernment, that it would bring life because a lack of discernment brings spiritual death. It brings death into our life when we don't discern 
by the word of God. When we don't call sin what it is, when evil makes a manifestation, avoid every appearance of evil, cleave to that which is good, that we're not like children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. That is life-saving, that is life-giving. And then we see in this verse as well, in verse 144, this idea of understanding, bringing life, that speaks even to what we talked about from James 1, about having the right attitude toward God's word. Loving God's word, not forgetting God's word. Wanting God's word to bring understanding and discernment that we might have life. We might live out that life that is abundant and more abundant. And that we not have a bad attitude toward the scripture. But that we be quick to hear and slow to wrath as we were looking at just recently in the book of, in the book of James. So we come to the end of this stanza. And we see that God is righteous. We see that God's word is righteous and produces righteousness within us, produces Christ-like character within us. And we're reminded in this stanza in verse 139 again of the need for a zeal and a passion for the Lord and for his word and for his righteousness to be produced within us. And we are reminded again in verses 143 144 of the need to delight in God's word, to love God's word, not forget God's word, to know God's word so that we can have discernment, that we might have a life-giving and a life-receiving life of godliness, of righteousness in our walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight, and Lord, we've just taken a brief look at this psalm and this stanza. But Lord, such great reminders of our need for the word of God to impact our life, to take root in our hearts and lives. And Lord, many times it comes right down to our attitude toward the word of God. Lord, may we, like the psalmist, love the word of God, delight in the word of God, and allow the word of God to bring understanding and discernment. Lord, we thank you that you are righteous, that your word is righteous and produces righteousness. Lord, may we have the love and delight for your word, for you, for, to have a zeal and a passion for thee, Lord, that we might go out with the gospel and that, Lord, we might live a life that is pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Derek is going to come and lead us in our closing hymn tonight. 614, we sing, I Shall Know Him. We'll sing stanza number three as Derek comes and leads us. 614, I Shall Know Him. Won't we stand? and find 614 in our hymn